At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. On this fourth day of 2022, here's wishing you good health and contentment in the new year. We're grateful you are here with us as together we explore a wide range of arts and culture that can add meaning to our lives. Or give us a good laugh, or just make us feel better. And to that point, the art of muralist George F. Baker III, also known as GFB3, reveals themes of community and togetherness combined with a fun, childlike spirit. Last June, GFB3 sat down with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes, and later this hour, we'll listen back to their conversation about the warmth and love that exudes from Baker's art. First, children's books such as Love You Forever, The Rainbow Fish, and The Giving Tree are classics cherished by countless readers. But have you ever read one of those books and thought, wow, this ending is a little problematic? Well, Atlanta playwright Topher Payne has got you covered with his project, Topher Fixed It. He provides parody alternative endings to beloved but problematic children's literature. Topher Payne joins me now via Zoom to tell us more about the project. Topher, welcome back to City Lights. We've missed you. Oh, Lois, I've missed you too. It's good to be back. So please tell us what initially sparked this interest of yours to fix classic children's stories? Well, it was inspired during lockdown from a project done by the Atlanta Artist Relief Fund, where they were doing story times at five o'clock a couple of days a week for kids at home. It gave Atlanta performers the opportunity to get in front of some kind of an audience, and you know we're not going to turn that down. (laughs) And I don't have children myself, so I only had a certain number of children's books in my house, and most of them were books from my own childhood. And one of them was Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. It's a beautiful book, but also, even as a child, was not one of my favorites. I was very much team tree and felt like she really got a bum rap in that story. Yeah, I agree. And so for the kids on story time, I thought it would be fun to do an alternative ending to the giving tree where the tree had a better day, darn it. And um, maybe that was just very much on my mind during lockdown. Really? And so I created an alternate ending called The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries and read that on Storytime and made it available for download on my website for free, just for any parents who may want to print out a copy because I changed the illustrations and had fun with it. And within a week, I had two million downloads. (gasps) (laughs) Talk about hungry for alternative endings. 
Topher, would you read your version, The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries for Us? Absolutely. With each story, I have a key moment where things take a turn, where mm. a different choice could be made by one of the characters in the story. And in The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries, it's after the boy comes asking for her branches to build a house. It extends a little bit, so I'm just going to take the very ending of it, and I think you'll get the gist. Eventually, the boy had a son of his own, and much later, the son of the boy had his own family too. Because of their friendship, the boy was successful and fulfilled, and the tree grew wider and stronger, standing tall and beautiful in the forest for many, many, many years, plus a few years even more than that. And as each generation played in her strong old branches, the tree often thought back to the fateful day when the boy had asked her for a house. In truth, she would have gladly given him her branches to build one. She would have given him her trunk to build a boat. She loved him that much. But then she would have had nothing left, not for herself nor anyone else. And there never would have been a home for the red squirrels. There'd have been no hide and seek with the boy's grandchildren, no bakery with the best apple pies anyone ever tasted. Setting healthy boundaries is a very important part of giving. It assures you'll always have something left to give. And so the tree was happy. Everyone was. The end. I think. That is indeed a happy ending. And you make such an important point about suffering and sacrifice and even some very grim turns in children's stories. Speaking of grim, I mean, I had some real problems with those fairy tales. <laughs> I think it's essential to present stories to children that don't necessarily have a happy ending, that don't necessarily have the best choices made by every character. I am a storyteller. I love the complexities of that. But it also requires a conversation between the reader and the child about what choices are made. And one of the frustrations that I have specifically about The Giving Tree is that it's often used as an example, particularly to young women or girls, about the nature of a loving relationship. And the tree ends up completely diminished by the end of that story. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong in the original telling. What I'd hoped with the alternate endings and what I did on Storytime with each one of the alternate endings is use the alternate as an opportunity to expand that discussion with the kid about here's one way things could have gone, here's another way things could have gone, and what does it mean for the characters in the story when those choices are made. Kids are savvy. They may not know specifically why a story makes them cry, but giving them the alternate ending is an opportunity to to allow for nuance to develop in a child's brain, to understand the repercussions of choices. And at the end of the day, Lois, I swear, they're just meant to, to be goofy and amusing, but you know, I've always got some kind of second motivation behind anything I write. <laughs> well, you may not have children of your own yet, but you're a very thoughtful teacher, Topher. The points you make are valid. What other children's books have you fixed so far? I did The Rainbow Fish by Marcus Pfister, which is the story of a beautiful glittering fish who gives away all of his beautiful glittering scales to everyone else so that they'll like him. So I have The Rainbow Fish keeps his scales and he learns not to diminish himself for the comfort of others. And... The Pout Pout Fish, which is a, a more recent book, that was one that a lot of parents came to me with after I put out the initial alternate endings. And I have The Fish Who Isn't Pouting, That's Just His Face. 
And then I Love You Forever, which turned out to be, I guess, the official children's book of Canada based upon the response. (laughs) (laughs) And so that one landed me on the national news in Canada defending myself. Oh, you're kidding. (laughs) Canadians are so kind. They'll apologize. I bet they apologize to you for. Really, Lois? Have you ever been to a hockey game? I'm telling you, (laughs) these people can turn. Yeah, but then you meet them, you know? I mean, look at Kevin Galese. Oh, well, sure. If they were all like Kevin, we'd all be doing great. The interesting thing about Love You Forever is what I found with that one, the origin story of Love You Forever by Robert Munch is quite, quite sad. And I found that people were standing in defense and support of the book primarily because of the impulse that the author had behind writing it, which I thought was really, really interesting and and was really instructive for me on how people receive art, that it isn't just what's on the page, it's also those that are familiar with the impulse behind it that very much colors their experience of the work. And it was a really good reminder of that. And I like to think it opened up some interesting conversations. And then I tried to just keep reminding people that the original books remain unaltered on your shelf. I haven't taken anything away. (laughs) Canadians were worried. They were very worried. They were very worried. (laughs) And you said in their beautiful way, sorry. Yeah, so sorry, but you're a terrible person. I'm like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Atlanta favorite Topher Payne. The playwright has recently taken on the challenge of fixing endings to problematic children's books. With his project, Topher Fixed It. You know, I have had similar concerns. Well, I've had very vocal opinions, actually, Uh, not only with children's stories, but with opera endings. Oh, of course. For example, I really wanted Madame Butterfly not to fall face forward on the sword, but to point the sword at Pinkerton, who is one of the most evil villains in all of art. (laughs) Point the sword. Of course, she's not going to kill him, but she gets on the boat with that adorable little boy and sails to the U.S. and becomes the early 20th century model for the ideal single mother. My God, Lois, you need to get on this. <laughs> like That's exactly the point behind it. It's satisfying that impulse because, of course, what makes Madame Butterfly, what makes Romeo and Juliet the powerful works that they are is that ending. It's that desire as an audience member, as someone receiving the story, to you're so emotionally invested and so emotionally engaged you want you crave that happy ending and the denial of it is often what gives the work the lasting power that it has in the alternate endings i think this is very much a product of this is very much art made in 2020 and 2021 this is taking that desire, taking that impulse and just saying, you know what, let's explore the best possible outcome here. Let's give ourselves the satisfaction of what the best possible outcome would look like. And I think we culturally and individually have kind of earned that lately. And that's an itch that could really use a scratch right now. Again, hoping that it inspires conversation about the original work. So are you finished with the alternative endings project or are you still taking on children's classics? 
I am definitely taking on suggestions. The most requested that I won't be doing is green eggs and ham. Because, <laughs> You're kosher. Well, it, no, it's just such a, uh, it, there's not much of an alternate ending there. It's, you know, he would say, you know, do you like green eggs and ham? No, I don't. Well, then have a very nice day. It was nice to meet you. <laughs> and, and so it doesn't really go anywhere. But I've definitely had an eye on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I may have something else to put out into the world. If you are taking suggestions, I have more than a few, but I, I won't give you all of them. Oh, we'll, we'll talk after we turn these mics off. Otherwise, I'd have to give you credit. <laughs> there was a book. It was not a picture book, but it was a young, whatever they called, I guess, a chapter book. I was in third grade. There was this book, Beautiful Joe. I am writing this down as you say it. Go on. I still have nightmares because this wonderful dog was abused by his evil human. And I know there was supposed to be, you know, a good part in there somewhere, but I still have nightmares. And while you're at it, old yeller, Bambi... <laughs> <laughs> the land before time. I know you said children must learn about loss, but do we need to do that when they're so young? I mean, that's the challenge, isn't it? That's a challenge for all of us as artists is how do you explore those concepts? And there's a reason that Old Yeller traumatized all of us <laughs> and the loss of Bambi's mother I do think it's, yes, I think it's essential. I also think it's, that's the beautiful thing about children's literature. When you have the relationship between the young person and the reader, when it's a moment of connection between the two of them, there's the opportunity to create a safe space to explore dangerous things. Again, with the alternate endings, it's also reminding them the beauty and safety of, and it's just a story. Ah. Now, many of our listeners are familiar with your edgier stories, <laughs> those that have been staged. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the feel-good films you've written for the Hallmark Channel. Do you have anything new in the pipeline there, Topher? Unfortunately, I don't have anything new coming out. Well, they are delightful. It's interesting to me to be talking with you about these alternative endings, particularly after Stephen Sondheim has died, because with James Lapine, he took an extended essay by the child psychoanalyst Bruno Bettelheim on the Uses of Enchantment, it was called, and turned it into this brilliant musical, Into the Woods. I think that's what you are doing is very much at the essence of how children process stories. Absolutely. And using Sondheim as such a fantastic example of how children's stories stay with us, how foundational they are to our understanding of storytelling. So it's not surprising that one of the masters of the art form returns to the very stories he was presented as a child and starts exploring what if, what is into the woods, if not one giant what if of the stories that we were presented as children. Well, Topher Payne, this has been delightful as always talking with you. And I thank you so very much. Well, thank you. People can find the alternate endings on my website. They're available for free download. I'm not trying to make any money off this. And you can print them in the exact same size as the pages in the original books. And also I've partnered with 
a wonderful designer named Charlie Cody, um, who is doing t-shirts of the alternate ending book covers. And you can find those at shop theoryandcolor.com and you can get your own tree who set healthy boundaries t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> and i should ask you who created the illustrations for your books uh that was charlie cody and oh, wonderful. yeah we worked together on that Oh, that's great. Maybe he could come up with something a, a bit more sinister for my alternative Madam Butterfly ending. I'm going to have him take a look at Beautiful Joe, and we're going to see if we can fix oh. your childhood, Lois. Atleta playwright Topher Payne. His Topher Fixed It children's book endings can be downloaded free of charge from his website, Topher Payne. That's P-A-Y-N-E dot com. In a moment, we'll revisit our interview with Atlanta muralist George F. Baker III, also known as GFB3. You're tuned to W-A-B-E Atlanta. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on W-A-B-E. I'm Lois Reitz. It's great to have you along. Over the past several years, Atlanta has gained a reputation as home to some of the best murals in our country. So when we Atlantans are commuting in our equally famous traffic, at least we're able to gaze upon a bounty of wonderful art. Quickly becoming woven into Atlanta's scenery is the art of George F. Baker III, also known as GFB3. His work employs themes of community and togetherness, combined with a fun, childlike spirit. Last June, GFB3 joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes, and they began with discussing the warmth and love that exudes from Baker's art. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much. I, I think that's one of the first times anybody has ever said that love is, is really at the center of a lot of my work, and, and it definitely is. And I think for me, the way that I got to that point was I feel like just the way that I was raised, like I was really raised with just seeing the beauty in, in everything, especially people. People are some of the, the main inspirations behind why I do what I do, because I love when they just bring their authentic childlike selves out to the forefront. So, yeah. And your work has become such a fun part of our Atlanta landscape. Can you tell me a little more about your connection to Atlanta and how you landed here? Because this is not your birth home, right? No, not my birth home at all. I've been, well, I was actually born in Omaha, Nebraska, raised in Detroit for a little bit, Savannah, Hilton Head Island, and then I got to Atlanta in 2003. I've been here ever since. This is now, in my eyes, my forever home. I don't really want to be anywhere else. Atlanta has has just done so much for me and has really opened my eyes to just how wonderful of a place that it is because it is such a, it is a big city, but I feel like it really has a very small city feel. I always like to tell people this is the place where everybody knows everybody and we're two mm -hmm. steps away from Keisha Bottoms. 
So. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Not Kevin Bacon. Oh, Keisha no, not, Bottoms. Yeah, Keisha Bottoms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Atlanta is just a connection of a bunch of small communities that end up making this beautiful city. And I know your recent work went up in Adair Park an area of town that is finally getting some of the attention that is well overdue and that it deserves. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that piece? It's the jewel of Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. It is the jewel of Atlanta. And in my eyes, I feel like that is exactly what a dare park is. It is a place, like you said, that hasn't really gotten as much shine and, and spotlight when it comes to the neighborhoods of Atlanta, but it has such a beautiful history. It has such welcoming people. And I think for me personally, having lived in Adair Park, having lived over in the West End, one of my biggest gripes was that there wasn't as much artwork in the West End and in Adair Park. And so as soon as this opportunity came across my docket, the first place that I chose was Adair Park specifically a dare park too because i've been in that park before i've played basketball i've gotten dunked on because i'm not good at basketball at all <laughs> um <laughs> you know I've, I've ran around that park i've had picnics there and it just always seemed like it's this one special spot in atlanta in a dare park that everybody that is there in that community frequents and i wanted to be able to amplify the beauty that was already there you know, like I feel like all the murals that I do, they're not meant to beautify a place. Not at all. They're meant to amplify the beauty that is already there. And the beauty that was in Adair Park was that it's the jewel and it just needed a wall piece to be able to, to state that. And the piece has a bunch of your signature characters on mm -hmm. it, some being <laughs> sporty, playing tennis and biking. And then there's one little guy. Is he playing hide and seek? He's kind of sticking out behind a tree. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I yep. Love it. Playing hide and seek, of course, you know. <laughs> I love it. I like that you caught that. <laughs> it's just great. I know that that was a partnership and sponsored through Safe Auto. And mm -hmm. that kind of made me wonder how do you balance your creative freedom with the need to still put food on the table? Oh, man. I feel like one of the most powerful things that you can have as, as an artist or entrepreneur, or really just as a person, is a powerful no. And, and when it comes to how I, how I go about creating things that, that have like money attached to them or our sponsorships or stakeholders is by being okay with saying no to a project at any time. If I feel like it's kind of drifting a little bit too far away from it being an intentional creative piece. And so luckily with this piece with Safe Auto, they immediately were just like, no, we just want to work with an artist in Atlanta and we want that artist to be able to create whatever that they want. And I was surprised for one. I was like, are you, are you sure? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, you want me to add a car? Like, <laughs> and they said, no, just do whatever you want and do whatever feels right to you because you, you know this community a lot better than we do. You know what the, the wants and needs are for wall art way more than, than we do. And we trust your, your vision. So I just look to work with people that trust my vision and that I can also in turn trust their vision. I definitely just want to thank the, the company Muros for even helping to initiate a lot of that uh, Safe Auto project. You know, I appreciate them so much for having the belief in me to, to activate this project and to be the, the best person to pull this off. So have to give my love to them. That's great. Well, I think the right people have been drawn to you. Oh. I want to talk about some of your other pieces as well. Just to give everyone who might be unfamiliar a better idea of who you are. And when I talk about your warmth, here's the titles of some of George's pieces, okay? Make friends. Everyone has a seat here. In this together. Be you, spread good. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you have a piece it. that's uh, titled Marta. Can you talk a little bit about the elements that you put in there? That was a wonderful project that I did with Marta. And I was just incredibly happy as soon as they picked me for the project because I've ridden Marta all my life. I, I'm like, I went to Georgia State. I was a commuter student for my first couple of years. 
when I had to take two hour bus train trips to uh, Georgia State. And so I just know about the value of MARTA for the specific project. They had all these like dividers, these stone dividers that would kind of divide the passengers, you know, from the buses for safety purposes. But um, I wanted to figure out a way to kind of make that a, a creative and fun interactive piece. So, you know, I put all these different legs that are on all the stone tablets and I wanted people to kind of interact with them, possibly be able to see the beauty in the fact that MARTA is a way for you to connect with all these different types of people that are coming from all these different types of places. And at the end of the day that we're all just trying to to get better, we just happen to be doing that together and we should acknowledge that. So If you're just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, talking to illustrator and muralist George F. Baker III. George, you have a multitude of murals up around Atlanta and other cities, but there's one recent project I find particularly interesting. It's the rooftop of the Peachtree Center building. Yeah, yeah. (sighs) Wow. Can you describe that piece? Oh, man. It's an optical illusion. Yeah, that was a project I was assisting on with the artist 1010. And his style is basically using all of these like different kind of shapes and circles and winding curves to kind of create these optical illusions of like immense voids. And having the opportunity to work with him on that rooftop, which was wild in itself because I'm incredibly afraid of heights. Oh, man. Yeah, even, yeah. Even with the work that I do, I may seem fearless getting up there, but know that my knees are shaking. Oh, man. And and so being up there with him and seeing how calm he was on like, yeah, we're just going to do something really funky up here. And we definitely achieved that. Even had to jump down or descend down to a lower part of the building to paint one last area of the piece. You know, once again... I was definitely afraid the whole entire time. I don't know if he noticed that, but <laughs> but yeah, I'm like, if anything, I felt, I feel like one of the most beautiful parts of it, not only it being an optical illusion, is the fact that it totally transforms the skyline. Mm. <laughs> and I feel like that's one of the most beautiful things about about doing public art. Like you really have an opportunity to totally transform a place with just paint. you know painting a little bit of can do and then seeing that on the Atlanta magazine's you know cover it was it was such an amazing experience and so happy I was able to do that it's an amazing piece that looks like it has so much depth to it and I I just find it hard to believe that it's on a flat surface it's crazy (laughs) looking I love it don't fall into it oh no (laughs) not a fan of heights either no way (laughs) So you mentioned the Atlanta Magazine cover, but that's not the only time your work has been featured as the cover art, right? You designed the 2020 Best of Atlanta cover. Can you tell us a little bit about the elements that you put into that piece? Yeah, that was such a fun project. Like, I'm just a huge fan of Atlanta. And and like you said earlier, like, the beautiful thing about Atlanta is that it really is all these separate individual subgroups that are in Atlanta that overlap each other sometimes in in you know good ways and in clean ways and sometimes in less clean ways atlanta is a a beautiful tapestry and i wanted to be able to illustrate that with that piece by like putting in things like supremo which is one of my favorite taco spots in atlanta giving some shout outs to the Braves and, you know, even giving some shots out to the uh, Starlight. The fact that, you know, we have Run the Jewels here with Killer Mike and, you know, all of their success. Even giving some uh, love out to one of my favorite mural artists in Atlanta, Yo-Yo Farrell. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What yeah, a talent. just amazing artist, incredible artist. And even loving some things like the uh, Atlanta United. I have to give them all of the the love and the adoration because they made me enjoy soccer. And I'm like a full Atlanta United head now. And I never thought I would ever <laughs> enjoy soccer as much as I do now. You mentioned Killer Mike being incorporated into your Best of Atlanta cover. You also got to collaborate via the Adult Swim piece, right? Yes. Oh, yes. 
Oh, it still honestly it still gives me chills understandably because it, it meant a lot to me definitely meant a lot to me to work on that project with him yeah so for those who are unfamiliar it is a beautiful large piece that basically just has killer mike's infamous now quote we must plot we must plan we must strategize organize and mobilize and to have gotten to be a part of commemorating that, that must be a lovely feeling. Yeah, it was a beautiful feeling because it's something that I truly do believe, like that we must not only, you know, do all of those things that are stated in the quote, but we have to figure out and remember that it's going to take a lot of people from different backgrounds, from, you know, different professions to be able to get us to go in the, in the right direction. Like we have to make sure that we're considering everybody in plans for like elevation, because if your idea of lifting up people only includes a certain amount of people and doesn't include everybody in, in the room to actually create it, you're leaving people out. It's not true elevation. And so being able to visualize that with this project was gorgeous. And then also it was just, it was a dream come true for me. Like I've grown up watching Cartoon Network. I've grown up watching Adult Swim. And to be able to not only work with them and have these billboards out in Atlanta and LA and New York, but also to have the actual animation team take my work and fully animate the project and put it on TV. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like, there's a clip of me on my on my Instagram, like catching it in real time with my mom. Aww. And it wasn't a planned thing at all. She literally came down there that day. It was something like unplanned. She flew all the way down from like Detroit. Then I got the call from Adult Swim that they'll be airing that. And then we got to watch it together. And I'm just crying tears of joy because for her, she was just like, you know, this really made all of the no's worth it. Mm. Even now I'm getting... I'm getting like tearful. It's a big uh, deal. It was a moment that crystallized everything for me. Like I already have a good belief in myself, just like anybody else. I struggle with thinking that I can do this, you know, and seeing that on TV, seeing a dream realized in real time was, it gave me another battery pack to continue on doing what I do. Right on. And you mentioned having always been a fan of Adult Swim, and I can see those influences in your work. What were some of your favorite cartoons that you used to watch? Oh, oh man, that's a long list. Uh, <laughs> Samurai Jack, Dexter's Laboratory, of course, you know, Dragon Ball Z, Pokemon. Oh, man. Nice. SWAT Cats, which is a very random niche cartoon if it was a cartoon in the 90s and in the early 2000s just know i watched it (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i also see influences though from older generations are you familiar with the schoolhouse rock series yes i am man i Mm -hmm. see that in your work (laughs) yes i used to watch that too when i was younger that would come on uh some of the like news channels before the actual news would start, I would see episodes of Schoolhouse Rock as a kid. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Learn how a yeah. bill becomes a law. <laughs> I'm only a bill and I'm sitting on Capitol Hill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you are also the creative director of Foster Studio Collective. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah. Foster in itself is really my personal studio to kind of create different things or events that kind of help to bring out the childlike nature in people. So this ranges from something as small as like stickers or something as large as one time we did a cereal social called Low Fat, where we literally set up a cereal bar inside of Switchyards, invited people to come out and have their favorite cereals. (laughs) Yep. Oh my gosh. How do I find out about Mm -hmm. those things for next time? Well, you know, as the world starts opening back up, I'll be putting stuff out there on my Instagram and just kind of uh, hoping people come out and experience the the beauty of being a child again, because we all need play. Muralist and illustrator George F. Baker III, also known as GFB3. You can see his recent mural, The Jewel of the City, in Adair Park, too. And keep your eyes open for his many other works on buildings and walls throughout our city. More information is available on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear about the electrifying artwork on display in Woodruff Park, courtesy of Prism Winter Lights. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. At this time of year when daylight is shorter than darkness, the Atlanta Downtown Improvement District and Peachtree Center are brightening downtown Atlanta with an outdoor exhibit curated by Dashboard, the award-winning experimental art company. Prism Winter Lights have returned to Woodruff Park. The large-scale work showcase national and local artists Atlanta artist Fabian Williams, whose work is featured, joins me now via Zoom to talk about his work with Godmother of the Arts in Atlanta, Alice Lovelace. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. How is PRISM set up in Woodruff Park? Well, my piece is set up near the, the water fountain at Woodruff Park, mounted on an eight-foot by 20-foot translucent acrylic panel. It's basically a giant light box. The painting that I did was photoed and then printed on this, this acrylic material. And the poetry art installation is a section of a poem from Teresa Davis. That neon piece of art sits right above the waterfall. Mm. And it says, ring yourself awake. Alice, what can you tell us about the Atlanta poet Teresa Davis? Teresa is a very active poet in the Atlanta community. She hosts three open mics, one for Java Monkey, one for Clarate, and then the Arts Exchange open mic. Uh, she's a 25-year classroom teacher, teaches creative writing. She's a very popular poet around Atlanta. She's a slam poet. She's been, um, you know, the woman of the world slam champion. And she's highly respected and highly thought of poet around Atlanta. Next to the lit up text is a QR code on the ground that viewers can scan to read the full poem. What is the full poem about? It's called Inheritance. It's about some of the things that you inherit from your family that sometimes even within the family you have to, what she says, ring yourself awake, be, become uh, aware and uh, pay attention to what's going on within the family. Mm. Fabian, your piece is titled Abracadabra. If only you could have waved a magic wand to make something that size appear instantly. What can you tell us about the installation process? Well, I didn't do too much in the installation. Like all things in, in most projects, hurry up and wait. I had to hurry up and paint the picture, get it photographed, and then chrome color over the acrylic vinyl. And then some other people laid in the lights. After the picture was painted, my, my job was easy. I was just observing and making sure everyone's cool. Oh, so you were the executive artist. More like a associate creative director, you know, just kind of like, uh, like, nah. Yeah, nah, <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> Sounds good. Artists don't usually have that luxury. Well, I mean, it's levels. I mean, I have some artist friends that work with a team, you know, so I'm trying to get there. I only got two hands. Doing murals is like doing construction work. In the piece, the words, I will create as I speak, are swirling out of the man's mouth as he soars through the air. What's the meaning behind this phrase? Well, it's about speaking what you want, you know. A lot of times when I'm doing my work, I say, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. Um, and I say it a few times before I actually do it because a lot of times when I'm about to do something, I usually don't know how to do it fully. 
So there's always like a five to 10% part of the production where I have no idea what I'm doing. And it's scary. So my way of psyching myself into the project is like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a sculpture. There's a lot I don't know. And usually when I do something, you know, there's something new in there because I didn't know how to do it before. I always try and learn and, and add to my repertoire stuff. I've never made a, a light box out of, you know, full color acrylic, transparent acrylic, you know, on frosted panels. That's, that's, that's a new one for me. It's not scary, but it is scary. It's like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I hope it's cool. It's what artists do. So I wanted to create like a, a visual memo for people like myself that have to psych themselves into doing stuff they don't know how to do. Ah, now, there are symbols that follow the phrase in your artwork that resemble Egyptian hieroglyphics. What are those? Well, they're Egyptian hieroglyphics. They are. Okay, so I got that right. What do they symbolize? It spells out abracadabra. Ah. So what I didn't do is I didn't put a key up there. But, you know, you can also just look online if you're crafty. If, oh, to live in this age. Yeah. Can either of you speak about Dan Lamb's installation? Oh, I can tell you it's a lot of fun. On opening night, it's this creature that looks like it's dripping and oozing. And oh my goodness, to watch the children play in and around that sculpture, families taking pictures of themselves. The young people had a lot of fun with that sculpture. and They really enjoyed it. Very whimsical. Very. How can these installations featured as part of PRISM be great conversation starters for viewers to address serious topics and issues. Well, I think uh, all of them have a little piece of a message to, you know, about, you know, you being in control. The three-pronged physical, the sculpture that Dan Lamb did, it all, to me, is about, you know, having control of yourself, having control of your actions, and your imagination. Some of us suffer from, you know, lack of imagination. We ourselves one way. And you really can do anything you want here. You just have to have the imagination to claim it. And, you know, if you don't know yourself, then you can't be the best of yourself. A lot of it, to me, the theme seems to go back being in control of yourself and your imagination your imagination is where, you know, you dream up things for yourself and, and your family. I am excited about these um, outdoor sculptures, and I'm exceptionally excited about them adding poets this year and recognizing poets as having a, a voice in the visual arts world. But uh, Dan, she talks about her work as being this thing between desire and disgust. And it was very interesting. I got to talk about the families because, you know, children love disgusting things. So I think <laughs> so immediately drawn to it because it looks like the goop that children like to play with. And, and then I watched as they encouraged their parents to join them. And it was an interesting way of families bonding. And then the Fabians, of course, is the imaginative thing, you know, that you could fly, that you somehow are larger than the universe, that there are secret languages embodied inside of all of us waiting to come out. And then, of course, with the Teresa's phrase, ring yourself awake, so many implications personally and politically, particularly given the time that we are in, that it is our responsibility to be awake and aware. A very stimulating environment, the entire environment around Woodward Park. Indeed. Thank you so much for speaking with us and for brightening downtown. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Poet Alice Lovelace is president of the Arts Exchange. She curated the poetry component of Prism Winter Lights, which is on display through January 31st in downtown Atlanta's Woodruff Park. She was joined by contributing Atlanta artist Fabian Williams. By the way, Williams has a special collaboration rolling out with WABE later this month. In the coming weeks, you can look forward to City Light sharing more about his 
limited release design on our Instagram and Facebook pages. More information about the art exhibit Prism Winter Lights is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., choreographer Rehama Brown and artist Fahamu Peku share details about a new film and the African Diaspora Art Museum of Atlanta, also known as the Museum Without Walls. Plus, City Lights producer Summer Evans talks with photographer Robert Ferrer and curator Rafael Gomez. Their exhibition Backstage Pass, Dior, Galliano, Jacobs, and McQueen is on view now at the Scad Fash Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E at Latta's Choice for NPR. wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.